and the over specifying, it's a little bit like if you're wearing shoes with shoelaces and you tie the shoes together and you then try to move forward and then you realize that, oh, oh, I'm tripping, I can't move fast and you have to be very careful. And it almost appears sometimes that when we are developing policies that we over-engineer the policy instead of focusing on principles. Professor Sarab Sina is Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Johannesburg, where he is responsible for research and internationalization. I met Professor Sina almost two decades ago when I was pursuing my undergraduate degree in engineering at the University of Pretoria. By then, despite being only a couple of years older than me, Professor Sina was already a lecturer and had already obtained cum laude with a distinction for his master's degree in engineering. Professor Sina served as a mentor and a major source of inspiration to me. I can hardly say that I have met any other person with the intelligence, the academic contribution, the accomplishments, and the productivity that he has demonstrated over such a short period of time. The man has co-authored over 135 publications in peer-reviewed journals, books, and at international conferences. My brain always explodes and I always walk away feeling inspired, motivated, rejuvenated and fascinated every time I speak to him. I hope that you enjoy and learn from this conversation as much as I did. My name is Tony Yannick Kalombo and welcome to the Deaf Box Podcast. Tony, it's been such a long time. I was so looking forward to having this conversation with you. And how are you doing? How are things for you? Things are going great for me. Thank you. And it has indeed been a long time uh, since we last saw each other, at least in the flesh. I believe it was at your inauguration as a professor, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. So it was more recent because I actually, maybe because the inauguration is always a little stressful, but I think what I had remembered was seeing you at a wine farm in Speed yes. in 2009. And somehow I remember that more than the inauguration. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I was at Speed last uh, two weeks ago. And I was thinking about you and uh, the other people that we were at, and it was so much fun. And I was looking at your profile the other day, and I said, when I met you in 2006, I think you did the project in 2007, and you were always up to doing entrepreneurship. And I, I looked at your profile, and I said, eh, Tony is not going to stick with any company. It's just not. It's just uh, the companies cannot limit him. He is going to define his path, just as you were. So that was nice to see. And it was nice to see that you actually realized the founding of your own company. Many people cannot do it. And I think that it was something that you always had. And so it was very nice to see that. And so you must tell me the process because I have potential to talk a lot. So this is exactly it. This is what it is. We have no process, no limitations. It's free form conversation. And the idea really, it's a podcast, but I frame it as a repository of ideas of people that I know who really have either shaped my mind or have inspired me in one way or another. And you are right there on top of the list of people who absolutely influenced me. So when I came up with the idea of starting this podcast a year and a half ago, you were like there on the list already. Well, oh, thanks so much. Yeah, so thank you very much for agreeing to do this with me. And I know that you are a busy man, so I appreciate your time. 
I really appreciate you thinking of me. Let's say Inspire and Perspire are almost very similar sounding. And that combination comes in from every now and then in the work that we do. So it's really good. Just maybe to touch, definitely, I've always been inspired personally to start a company. Let me put it that way. And growing up, I come to learn that it's, it's one thing to start a company. It's another thing to have an organization. And it's another thing to make a profit. And it's another thing to build to last. And, and at this stage in my life, between when I graduated from my undergrad to now, there's been a journey of few attempts at studying businesses, either passive or active. And as you've rightfully said, over the process of the last two years, I just kind of decided to dive into it. And it's been almost like a spiritual process for me. This is like being a higher calling, I guess. And so I'm happier fulfilling it. <laughs> so I started this company called DevBox. And the ideas around DevBox have been playing in my mind one way or another over years. I think you recognize that even back in 2006. And I remember wanting to do this for as my earliest memories as a 10 year old, I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to be an inventor and create technology. And somehow I wanted to do it in the context of a company. So this has been in my DNA from as long as I can remember. And the idea behind DevBox has evolved to where it is now, where it's a software automation company. And the context at the moment is really in the networking space, in the shaping of how the internet evolved. And that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. And the goal is to turn it into a big platform or at least a scalable platform, a network platform, mostly virtual nodes on the internet, self-replicating, self-healing virtual nodes that perform functions that shape the way the internet runs. So yeah, that's been the idea uh, behind DevBox. With it, there's the human factor. I meet a lot of great people and I want to create also a, a, a network and a culture because as you've said, I've worked in a few companies and a lot of companies have these kind of manufactured cultures and few companies have authentic culture. So I found inspiration in shaping a culture that would be a bit more authentic, that would be a bit more about innovation, about people and about just exploration and experimentation as well, because I believe that nothing is really cast in stone. And sometimes the best ideas happen when we experiment with different thoughts and concepts. And the podcast is kind of the creative outlet to the idea behind the company. And I figured I'll put out a podcast and share it with the world and see what happens. And so far, it's been very good. So I'm very excited for this stage in my growth. Yeah, it sounds uh, quite, quite fascinating, particularly as you were speaking, I was thinking about platforms like LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and others, and that they have all developed and leveraged the power of people plus machine-based interconnectivity. And of course, now it really gets quite interesting in the sense that the platforms such as 5G is coming to the party, which means that our ability to communicate a lot more data increases exponentially. And at one stage, I thought of a concept of a system of systems. And as I hear you, I am thinking of the possibility of a network of networks where that concept can actually intertwine. And these networks are also virtual networks. And I'm seeing this as multiple clouds that computing clouds that interact 
interacts with each other, but at the same time establish a self sense of securing itself because cybersecurity becomes much more challenging. And I think on cybersecurity, there are also a number of new tools and techniques. At the university, we of course do quite a bit of AI. I know that a lot of people think about it as artificial intelligence. We think about it as augmented intelligence and the augmentation where people and machine come together, infusing and infusing techniques, data that helps to contend the growing cybersecurity within this metaphorical space of cloud computing, interconnected clouds, and ensuring that they bring about a sense of security, but that would have to continue to evolve as people engage with that. So that does sound quite exciting. Of course, the other day I was also looking, and maybe you have some thoughts on it, is that the internet that we currently access, and if we call the web, the web, but we also call it web plus deep web. And deep web is also a deep word because it also has constituents. And one of those constituents is that of the dark. And within the dark web, there are also issues because unfortunately, as 5G evolves, it means that the deep web in a way will also evolve in its communication, in its usage. And within the deep web, the dark web would also evolve. In one sense, we see more ransomware emerging. The other day I heard that within the dark web, there's a possibility to access ransomware as a service, like how we use the word software as a service. And so how does one contend that aspect of the deep and the dark web, particularly as the internet grows? I don't know if there is an answer to that, but maybe you have some thoughts. What we kind of term as the dark web, I just see it as more the internet with a stronger focus on encryption because essentially it's called a dark web because it's a part of the internet where people really don't know what's happening. Therefore, people with ill intention exploit that for whatever means, be it terrorism or ransomware or financial fraud, etc. But the reason it's the dark web, it's because it's very well encrypted and so the way that I see it is that the commercial internet or the internet that we all log on to or social media and so forth is currently going an evolution where encryption is becoming more and more prevalent and more and more unnecessary. We've tried to make the internet as simplified as possible to attract the layman to using computers. And now that the laymen are using computers, they are not securing their passwords. They're not using multi-factor authentication. They are not encrypting the websites that they put up on the internet. As such, a lot of the information becomes exposed. And we also jump onto social media platforms where we freely give our information. Now, with that said, we kind of created this internet that is absolutely open and a little bit too open. And then the dark web really represents a part of the internet where encryption and the concealment of identity has taken the forefront. Now, if we have to dive into the illicit part of the internet and how we can curb stuff like ransomware as a service, for instance, I think that those things would always be there. And I think that it's a whole lot more incumbent on internet service providers or internet infrastructure providers to put together tools or systems in place that are able at doing early detection of, of malicious activity on the internet or malicious packets and being able to proactively curb or curtail the impact of those malicious packets. Because at the end of the day, really, it's packets. And we've traditionally intercepted stuff like viruses, for instance, or malware, 
would be through certain signatures that these viruses would have in their headers or in the packets that they are contained. And with the use of artificial intelligence, for instance, we could be able to filter out the ransomware or the malicious aspect. But of course, it's always very reactive. You know, if there's a new virus, we first have to learn the virus and then react to it. But if we employ more artificial intelligence, for instance, for learning ill intent, because one of the awesome things about artificial intelligence is that we can actually use it for intent. So like banks, for instance, have the ability to tell when a specific user has some sort of ill intent based on their activity on the internet, and then they can proactively stop or prevent the damage without going too technical about it. But that's kind of my thoughts around it. It sounds interesting. You know, I think that if one thinks about something very simple like email spam, and I think at one stage we had kind of the rise of the spam and then you and I and others, as soon as there was spam, one could identify that a spam goes back, feeds into the service that then says, okay, many people are identifying this as spam. And today we see that when a new spam comes about, it gets picked up and the filtering has become actually very good. And so I thought that maybe techniques like that, where, you know, the ability of the person, the user and machine intelligence comes together because it then starts to also see which users identify spam more correctly. And so they build credibility and then this exponentially feeds into the way that data analytics occurs when it comes to filtering. The other thought I had in my mind as you were speaking was atoms that are kind of connected. And I was thinking about those virtual nodes that you talked about quite similarly to how atoms connect and the Bohr model of the atoms. And then in my mind, I went to one step further where when we think about particularly of neural networks, that each of those nodes are a summation of inputs and outputs based on certain behavior that we expect that would be created by the nodes. And of course, the nodes then enable retraining and continuous training. And of course, and then the more nodes you have, the more interactivity of these nodes that take place, the better the filtering. And I thought that that is the one side of it with all these virtual nodes. And some of these virtual nodes could also represent aspects or elements of the deep and the dark web. And then I thought that, you know, so one could be using such a thinking to start to do early identification, as you have indicated, or behavior based. But I, I wondered whether the technology solutions and the role of the internet service providers on its own would be sufficient and whether government should take a further role in regulating and especially in countries like South Africa, where the inequality is deep, which also projects to inequality in the digital domain. And that means that whereas those that have exposure to internet are much more aware, but I always wonder that if you do not have a regulatory framework, then would it not actually make people more vulnerable? But on the other hand, what will be the impact of those regulatory framework on uh, people who are very creative on entrepreneurs and whether there is a possibility of being able to develop a policy approach. And it may not be a static policy. That's another thing that often when we develop policies, particularly in our own environment in South Africa, we tend to over-specify in the policies. And the over-specifying, it's a little bit like if you're wearing shoes with shoelaces 
and you tie the shoes together and you then try to move forward and then you realize that, oh, oh I'm tripping, I can't move fast and you have to be very careful. And it almost appears sometimes that when we are developing policies that we over-engineer the policy instead of focusing on principles and recognizing that those principles would accompany protocols and would accompany procedures. And in the world of today and tomorrow, that we have to constantly evolve those protocols and procedures, perhaps partly also based on citizen education. And that I think will be much more prominent with the evolution of 5G. Tony, you may notice that I'm still working in the millimeter wave areas. Oh, yeah. so I'm definitely very biased towards 5G. And I know that some people have had great fears because of the view that is 5G a creator of the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stop there. And a few fanatics have gone and burnt down cell phone towers. This is actually fascinating and this question comes up quite a few times. So maybe you as a prominent person, or rather a great authority on the matter, can you just please dispel the myth that radio waves cause cancer and maybe explain why that is not true? So maybe I should first pause a little and go back into history. You know, we had 1G, which is sometimes referred to all technologies before 1980, 2G as the 1992-2000 time period when the SMS came about, 3G between 2000 and 2010, which started to move into bringing the internet to your device, and 4G coming up in 2010, essentially your first digital computer in your hand, and then of course 5G, which moves into the domain of cyber, cyber physical interactions. And as we move from the 1G to the 2Gs and so on, our ability to carry data becomes more and more. And when you want to carry data, data is a little bit like people and cars, to draw an analogy, that if you have a road, let's think about the highway, that very busy highway, at least before COVID-19, between Johannesburg and Pretoria. That road was always very busy, congested, and then we expanded the road. And when we expanded the road, we had more cars and more people that could travel. The economy could do better as a result of that. And so the movements between this 2G to 3G to 4G is a bit like that, that in the virtual space, we have to build roads, we have to expand roads. And when we talk about building and expanding roads, when it comes to cell phone and wireless communication, they are of course not physical. They are in terms of increasing frequencies. And so we move from the frequencies used in 3G, now with 4G or 4G plus, and then to 5G, we move into millimeter wave frequencies. So when we came up with 3G and 4G, you know, one of the committees of the World Health Organization said that, well, we're not quite sure about the impact of this increasing frequencies on people. And when there is some level of uncertainty, it happened also with 3G and with 4G, they label it in a broad category that says that these elements may be carcinogenic. Now, that means that there's a potential for cancer and things like that. Incidentally, there are some other things that fall in this category. One of them very popular in South Africa is red meat. And another thing that is very common in this, particularly among engineering types and others, is coffee, which also falls in the very much the same category, identified by the same body. Now, there's always an element because to be absolutely sure and say that this coffee or red meat is not dangerous, you must have lots of data tested in various ways. And, you know, 4G was a relatively recent technology and it was identified in that way. But to date, we have not been able to find a 
causal relationship between 4G and cancer. By the way, we've been able to find some casual relationships. You see, the trouble with the word causal and casual is just the switch of a few characters. And so people, when they find casual relationships and it is kind of fitting with a environment or a thing that is happening, then it just makes sense. And people like to have and share a little bit of controversies. It kind of makes, uh, it's good food for conversation. I almost said a good food for thought. Now, when it comes to the COVID-19, which came out, well, we don't know where it originates, but a lot of the theories projected to Wuhan, where the first COVID identification occurred. And that happened in the December 2019 period. And in October period, Wuhan had started in its own engagements with 5G towers. Now, you have to see that when we come to this Gs, 1G to 2G to 3G and so on, it's been in an interval of 10 years. So from 4G to 5G, it was going to be a 10-year period before the 5G processes will come about. And we know that countries, particularly China, does have quite a bit of advancement when it comes to artificial intelligence. So their problem when it comes to dealing with data, also given the population of China, has been at magnitude higher than many parts of the world, which means that when it comes to technologies like 5G, then Huawei started to take lead in it and therefore those towers started to emerge. So on the one hand, through two to three months before the identification of the SARS-CoV-2, you have these towers emerging. And here in December 2019, you have the identification of the SARS-CoV-2. And therefore, the casual rather than causal relationship that folks then projected in our different states of lockdown, when you have time to somehow think about and ponder about these things, this virtual relationship, which of course is not the case. We know that these technologies and the viruses are quite different in not just shape and size, but also in terms of the energy that they require. And therefore one can actually 100% say that COVID-19 and the virus are not related. But then of course, during the lockdown period, economies had to survive. So they then used 5G. We are talking today over a Zoom platform. Zoom became one of the largest platforms. So it all was just a good food for the conspiracy theories to develop. But COVID-19 and 5G are not related. In terms of 5G and carcinogenicity, that is something different, where at the moment you cannot conclusively say, but you can fairly safely say because the millimeter wave frequencies are the wavelength and the electromagnetic radiation is so far below what the sun radiates. So if there are people that are scared of 5G, you have to be scared of the sun. So I think it's not a good idea to be scared of the sun. Yeah. That's where I would leave it. Yeah. Well, aptly put, you know, for me, one of the biggest foundational parts of my life, especially in terms of my conscious foundation, intellectual foundation was of course, during my university years. And I sat in your lectures, you were my lecturer in a few courses back in university, but you know, I learned a whole lot more about electrons and how electrons interact and how the transistor was actually invented or what comprises a transistor. And in that understanding of the atomic level of particles that I gained the deeper understanding understanding of life and of just the universe as it is. And of course, at an atomic level, radiation generally occurs at specific frequencies and 
those frequencies are far from the frequencies that we use to radiate millimeter waves, which are what are used for cellular communication, for instance. You know, whereas the frequencies that the sun radiates or the frequency that your microwave radiates is in a totally different spectrum. And just understanding the spectral differences allows me to sleep better at night, knowing what impacts or what harm the technologies that we create may pose to human life and to the planet as well. And I love that you are able to explain this in the way that you do, which kind of allows us to think a bit deeper about the impact of technology on humans and on society as a whole. Yeah, I think that the angle that you bring about in terms of the atom, but also the ionization energy, I think is an important angle. I should say a little bit about these experts, because including in peer review avenues, that if your research continues, continues to progress all the time and with certain assumptions, you can come to a particular conclusion and publish a paper explaining and saying and stating those assumptions. And often when people read the conclusion, they have not evaluated the challenge of those assumptions. So I think that even when we consult with peer review papers, I think it's important to look at and evaluate through a panel of experts rather than only a single expert. And often those experts will not only come from one academic discipline, they would come from sometimes in the humanities and social sciences, even when it is dealing with a technology topic. I often think that when it comes especially to technology, that people in the humanities and social sciences can be great, if not greater contributors, as they often have understanding and appreciation for how society will perceive a particular development. And if not left to design, there is possibility that those perceptions end up becoming the reality. And so the way that these discussions are communicated need to have those conversation platforms so that one can balance ideas, including some extreme ones, so that the truth sometimes lies between those extreme considerations. So it is not impossible to have these extreme viewpoints when it comes to 5G or any other technology for that matter. And similarly, when we are thinking about COVID-19, the variants of COVID-19, I think it's also equally important that we have multiple individuals looking at it and so that the public derives education as a result of this multifarious engagement. So talking about 5G, and seeing as you do quite some involved research in the area, or at least in the area of millimeter wave technology, is 5G a technology that is going to pick up here to stay? And do you foresee it being a mainstay in the structure of every day? Or is there going to be another technology that's going to come and distract us from 5G? Because it may come across as a hype, you know, where every company is trying to sell 5G. I recently bought a 5G device from a well-known South African mobile operator, but I couldn't even get 3G out of it, you know? So it's 5G here to stay and what will the trajectory be before it becomes proliferated throughout society? Yeah. So I should say that when I talked about these Gs, we said every 10 years. So let me start by answering that first part of the question. And I just want to very quickly share something that we are actually looking at a vision of 60. And Dr. Bojanish and I have just finalized the book. In fact, it's been published already, came out in mid-Feb. So I start by answering that, well, 
don't know about 5G here to stay, but I think there will be 6G. Now, to talk a bit more about 5G and why it is so challenging, what makes 5G challenging is that you move into a frequency space where anticipated you know, communication throughput extends by almost a hundredfold. Now, 5G has different definitions. What we are doing right now in South Africa is moving more from, I would call it 4G to 4G+. Plus, and then eventually to 5G. Now, in the first phase of the rollout that's taking place, we're really looking at frequencies up to six gigahertz, and that's not quite millimeter wave. Millimeter wave is often thought about in frequencies beyond 30 gigahertz. The second part of 5G, which is in the frequencies close to 30 gigahertz, it's up to, I think, in the range of 26 or 27 gigahertz. That frequency range moves closer to the millimeter wave range. Now, that means that your transistors and your technology has to be able to support that on the one end. But on the other end, more importantly, is that your cell phone towers, which is the back end, you can see them as your freeways or your highways. Your freeways and your highways must be able to support the data traffic or frequency infrastructure required for 5G. Now, so you can have a 5G handset or a mobile phone. In fact, I think I have Samsung S20, which is a 5G enabled phone. So if I go using that to certain parts of the world where the backbone supports 5G, I'd be able to access it. So the one approach is these different towers of 5G that's coming up. And as they extend, they will extend the platform of those frequencies. Now, in many cases, when you put towers down, you put towers which have a software enablement. So you can move from up for now first phase to six gigahertz. And then when the future phases come on, you don't have to go and put new towers. You're able to, in software, change to enable those frequencies. Now, the technology behind all of that is particularly those that get into the true millimeter wave range, still really under development. So that's not quite, quite ready in that sense. So there are a lot of different technologies. There's also fiber and a lot of us are using fiber at the university. We're also in a way using the fiber network that is provided through the TNET infrastructure connecting tertiary education institutes and science councils in South Africa. Now, what may happen is that you may find that there is a slightly different type of 5G rollout where let's say you go into a big mall and you go into the big mall and that mall is connected to a 5G pipe. I'm using the word pipe quite loosely and that could be a fiber network. And so once you go into the mall, you're able to access these higher frequencies with your mobile phones that are enabled a little bit like Bluetooth. Bluetooth worked at 2.4 gigahertz, like Wi-Fi that worked at 2.4 gigahertz. And it may not be only one kind of millimeter wave, which is a frequency wireless technology, electron-oriented technology. You may find that there may be other types like photon-based technologies. You get Wi-Fi and then similarly you get Li-Fi, which is light-based Wi-Fi. And so you probably will find a situation where you have a compendium of technologies that comes about. So on the one side, I think I'm making a case where 5G will develop and progress towards 6G, but it would find itself augmenting with multiple and myriad of technologies. And some of that we are likely to see in South Africa, but 
to drive a technology, you have to have the demand of that technology. And the South African population is a relatively a small population. And there are other parts of the continent where if you look at West Africa and Nigeria and also populations in East Africa, there are other segments on the continent where you do have greater population and population growth relative to South Africa. And so I do think that wireless technologies will develop differently, but it will benefit from the demand side of it. And South Africa, I think, will be one player player of it, but will find itself in some kind of competition with other players on the continent. And also, of course, naturally in the world, but I'm speaking more for South Africa and the continent at the moment. So those are where I see the technology going, but from a wireless uh, technology perspective. Mm, very insightful. So one of the the challenges or the caveats with Mumuluka wave technology, of course, is as we go up in frequency, the shorter the propagation distance. So where, where we had our 3G or 4G towers, one tower would, for instance, cater for a five kilometer square radius of density. You're going to have less propagation distance with the higher frequencies. Is that something that's being catered through, through new innovations? Or are we seeing ourselves having the urban, the densely populated areas be proliferated with more wireless millimeter wave technologies and the less populated rural or, or suburban neighborhoods move towards something like fiber, for instance? Yeah, I'm going to give a slightly different reflection that and I'll start with the urban scenario first, that in the urban areas, when we had light lampposts to give us light at night, we had initially a few of them installed on the main roads where there was greater usage. And then over time, we expanded them. And then we realized that it was not providing sufficient light. So we added more light lampposts at night to give us that light. And in a way, when you think about these millimeter waves, the challenge often is, you, you know, with the higher frequency, as you've explained, exactly as you have explained, that your distance becomes much shorter. And when you go into even higher frequencies, like at 60 gigahertz, you find that oxygen attenuation also diminishes your signal. So it becomes even shorter. Now, if you go back and think about how light was implemented. The rollout of your 5G and in, and in 10 years or so it's 6G, you'd probably, you would find that your Wi-Fi hotspots will become very much closer, just like the way that those lampposts are so much closer. Then the next part, moving away from the urban scenario to, to the situation in the, in the countryside, what one finds is that again, the light scenario is also valid there that you add and create light-based lampposts. And so you may find that you create a single or multiple Wi-Fi hotspots, but those Wi-Fi hotspots will have two enabling areas. One could be through fiber, but we must also recognize, especially on the continent, that we have very dispersed areas very far apart where they don't have a connectivity with fiber. So there, I think you'd have the satellite based communication. And I personally think that maybe because in South Africa, we moved from an electrification program in the eighties, which was serving a small population, nineties and so on, we improved the electrification. And then we realized that 
we need to do similar with water. And we did that. But when we were doing water, it was particularly of interest where one recognized inequality and one said that to deal with that inequality, particularly due to apartheid, we have some water that is available to people at no cost, again, depending on where you live, what your affordability of those zones are. And similarly, when it comes to data, they say data is the new currency. One would have to take cognizance of that those inequalities qualities that data can also create. And therefore, the data empowerment in, especially in the countryside, becomes a lot more necessary in future. So you zero rate certain platforms, especially when it deals with education. You may be a small holding farmer in a countryside and you might want to learn about crop rotation because you do not have access to fertilizers, expensive commercial fertilizers and perhaps harmful fertilizers. You want to learn about this. And if we avail that data accessibility to those areas, we create a livelihood there. And at the same time, we start to reach sustainability. And uh, sustainability is another very important part because the current approach of people moving into the cities behind me in this virtual image, you see the city of Johannesburg looks nice from far, but as you go into parts of the city, you realize that it is a bit far from nice. And that's where we have to move into creating those platforms that give access to people on data at much more cost-effective uh, ways. And so that means that you start to create demand and then you start to create more lampposts in those areas to bring about reaches into the countryside. So let me shift gears a little bit. So you are Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research and Internalization at the University of Johannesburg. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I must say that it often happens and there's no issue, but often when people give my title, they use the word internalization. Actually, it's internationalization. But I must be honest, no issue. I must say that I like that mistake from time to time because often in our environment, when it comes to internationalization, people say, you are you not creating competition for us in South Africa? And so I often have to internalize the importance of internationalization, especially in a world where we progress by diminishing boundaries, not only virtually, but by policies such as the free trade agreement that the continent now has. I totally agree. And you talked about apartheid, and I think that apartheid denied South Africa the access into international markets, as well as international ideas and thoughts, because a lot of the information was controlled. And so I think that our democracy has internationalized South Africa to such a massive extent. And it's actually a segue of why I asked you about your title. When I wanted to get to the point that you've kind of moved very quickly in your career, you are very young, I think you're not a couple of months older than I am. So if anyone knows how old I am, they would know how old you are. But you have actually known how to navigate yourself in positions of high responsibility. And with somebody whose role is to look at internationalization, I was curious about what would you do if you were, let's say, in the position of a president of a country? What is the one thing that you think that you would do? For instance, if you were in a position where you could move society forward, especially in a country like South Africa. 
I, I would say that, you know, South Africa has got a number of very unique strengths and not only South Africa, the continent has a number of very unique strengths. And what are some of those unique strengths? Well, there are a couple, but one of those big strengths that we have in South Africa and the continent is the benefit of youth. And when you think about innovations, who are usually your greatest consumers of innovations? They are your youth. On the other hand, who are your greatest creators of innovation? They are also your youth, including of some of the big theories. Newton came up, I think, with Newton's laws when he was 23. So I think if you put me in the presidential stage, which by the way, I have no desire to, I would take the approach of coupling youth, innovation, and innovative partnerships by bringing about the appropriate balance between deregulation of certain policies and economic frameworks with regulatory frameworks. I recognize this is a complicated statement, but I will maybe give one example that I visited many years ago, a country called Estonia. And Estonia came up with a number of platforms. At one stage, it came up with Skype because of the ecosystem that it created. But like we have in South Africa, industrial development zones, IDZs, we have one in the Eastern Cape and other places. They created a kind of an economic zone in the virtual space. And we have also recently moved into that direction. But they, in a way, deregulated to then regulate. But by doing that, they allowed for a little bit of democracy within democracy. And I must recognize the late, we just recently lost Professor Michael Cross to COVID-19. And I learned of this word democracy from the late Professor Cross. But it's to me that if you allow for that, you allow to co-create with your citizenry the solutions that you are seeking and to use the aspect of youth and innovation to the benefit of a country. I'm not at all saying that because I myself became an executive dean and then DVC at a very young age. But I do believe that that is a value add that I add in a significant way when it comes to our senior executive team. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm just about to come to the end of my first term. And I definitely believe that a lot of it has to do because of innovative practices that we have been able to do. And just earlier today, we received the ranking results. And once again, the University of Johannesburg in the universities that are called the young universities has done very well. And we've been able to compete, but that's because we see in everything that we do innovation. So that would be your one word takeaway. It would be innovation. If you want two words, using youth and innovation to the benefit of the country. Okay, that's awesome. And I'm curious about you talking about deregulation with the intent to re-regulate. Why would you want to re-regulate? Yeah, because I think what happens is if you look at the national system of innovation, and here I must say that one of my PhD students, Rendani Mampiswana, is working on this aspect of national systems of innovation. Maybe this will be broader in future because national boundaries in itself finds the permeability of virtual engagements. And one of the things that we have recognized is that when we have often tried to take an approach, we have tried to centralize and to regulate. And I partially think that it is because in a way, including maybe even in our universities, we have a thinking which is, you know, very colonial in thought where you must have control over a lot that you do because that's how colonies succeeded. And in our quest for it, for 
decolonizing the mind and decolonization of knowledge, one of the aspects that we have embarked on is to look at decentralized ways of nurturing policy spaces so that we are able to bring about a bottom-up infusion into the way that we think top-down. So it's not one or the other, it's a combination of approaches. That means that when you allow for too much decentralization, like maybe you have Facebook as an example, you find that your privacy starts to become a challenge. Then you go and you regulate that aspect. And then over a few years later, like a pendulum, you realize that now you need to deregulate and then regulate. But you must have that recognition in advance that you are going to have these pendulum shifts and it is okay to have these pendulum shifts. And if you know about it, then you can budget for it. And it's simply the nature of the world that we are going in, that we will need to, to keep in mind that data sovereignty is another aspect that becomes important because you may find that you are being given donated CCTV cameras for a city. It sounds very nice. You need them. We need them in the country. We have high rights of crime. We want to survey, to have more surveillance so we can bring crime down. On the other hand, you find that your data is seamlessly going over the cloud into another country and the capability that that analytics brings about is developed elsewhere. Is that something that a country would want? What would be the security implications of that? What would be the economic shift implications of that if data is a currency and it flows as freely? So one would then want to have certain regulations and public understanding around that. And so that's why where I say deregulate, regulate, deregulate, but that understanding that we must be recognition that one thing that will be constant will be change. But is this not something that blockchain attempts to solve? The idea of decentralizing your ledger, which in this case would be whatever the decision-making capacity or the source of truth is, right? So in a centralized space, like let's say the Reserve Bank, the source of truth is the Reserve Bank. But when we decentralize, then we also distribute the truth. Therefore, the need to regulate becomes less and people become self-governed by way of consensus, for instance, which is one of the mechanisms or algorithms that are used in a blockchain. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that blockchain and blockchain technologies is a very crucial part of how we will think in terms of the decentralization. I think that the problem is that sometimes we say that the truth can be centralized or decentralized. But the problem with any truth is that there is also what is not true or what is problematic. Now, if you think about blockchain, there is, and if you think particularly about cryptocurrency, it is also at times cryptic who are the users of cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies because you can conceal identity, which means that some of the problems that we talked about dark web also moves into this arena of blockchain. So if we don't have a non-binary thinking between centralized and decentralized, which I often think that in the fourth industrial revolution space, we think about distributed, which is the combination of centralized and decentralized and the ability and agility to move between one paradigm to the other seamlessly. I think that will be quite important in our thinking, just so that we are able to, in a way, preempt 
risks of one mechanism over the other. And I have also, as a person, you know, we all like to have one view and then you hear, and as we learn, we have now another view and more views. And one of the things that I have tried to, to shape in my own self over the last couple of years is that with information, we must be able to recognize that our views will be multiple and often not only the view that takes us forward, but a multidimensional perspective. They say 360 degrees. I try to think about it as 720 degrees sometimes to relook at the things, the same things with additional information. And sometimes we get new views. And I think that will be where the centralized and the decentralized aspects would go. Wow. Awesome. That's amazing. So to wrap it up, you love that you've survived your first term as the deputy vice chancellor and you touched on the fact that your youth has been a guiding force for you. Maybe what advice can you give to young people taking on daunting roles or roles of great responsibility? What was the unexpected thing that you ended up taking on or maybe the difficult challenges that you ended up facing when you took on the role that you never did anticipate? And how did you overcome those? And how can that be as parting advice? I think that if you write down these characters, opportunity is nowhere. And if you shift the gaps in the same sentence, you get to opportunities now here. They are the same characters. It's about shifting the gaps. Now, often when we are looking, and I wouldn't just limit this to young people, but also to people who are established or, or seasoned over life, that these individuals, we all in our ways of thinking tend to sometimes get so fixated that we see opportunity is nowhere and not always be able to shift those gaps through innovative thinking and entrepreneurial thinking. So I wouldn't limit only to kind of positions of high responsibility and to, to take an example of Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng, when he addressed one gathering at the South African Institute of Civil Engineers, he said that positional responsibility is one thing, but we all have a functional responsibility irrespective of positions that we have. And I think that we, like you have, need to create our spaces and they mean they should not be limited to you know, being in a top position in some big company or corporate or whatever. I think that the paths that one defines of finding one's conviction and making a contribution of that becomes, I think, much more overriding. I was able to contend, and I wouldn't say all of my challenges, but some of the challenges. And I think my biggest aspect was to buy and to get individual buy-in and then group buy-in and then find engaging and debating with groups, but not being fixed about ideas, but being able to co-create those ideas towards solutions. Sometimes I thought I had the right answer. By the way, maybe I did have the right answer, but as the proverbs goes that says that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go together. And I really do a lot and I spend a lot of time in, in engaging people. And I use that to build little consensuses leading to a big consensus. And, and that's been very important part of my journey at UJ. And I think it has contributed to my success. And I feel very comfortable at times because if you do it in that way, those ideas are no longer yours. They're of the collective and 
beyond you, you find that those ideas will sustain and scale, which I think is a very important outcome of any role that one occupies. Because do you know that in the bigger scheme of things, we are all some kind of a variable. And I just want to say thank you very much, Tony, for your engagement. It was really something that I think you're doing great work and keep that up. And I know that as we progress, we will definitely learn from the work that you are doing. I can say and assure you of that. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks and take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the DevBox podcast on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts by simply searching DevBox. That is D-E-V-B-O-K-S, DevBox. Also, hit the follow button on social media by simply searching DevBox, D-E-V-B-O-K-S. We're on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Until next time. Peace.